I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. scripture this morning comes from Hebrews 11 and John 20. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, that's the other disciples, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my fingers into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Vicki. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, I'm glad that uh, those of you who knew Drew was going to be gone still came. It's very encouraging. Uh, no, that's that's the the, the joke around here. Um, we did actually, and I think it's incumbent. I, I want to take a minute or two to just give you a, a little bit of a summary. Uh, because we don't have an opportunity to do it very often, but uh, this past week we had our General Assembly, uh, which is our denominational national meeting. Uh, It was in Greensboro, North Carolina, Uh, and uh, it's always a good time. It's always encouraging in many ways because uh, you've got, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 people that gather in worship services uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. It's always neat to worship with a lot of people, hear all their voices uh, singing, uh, and uh, hearing the Word of God preached. Uh, but also we got to, to handle some business and deal with some different things. One of the, the major things we dealt with was uh, the last year we've had a, a committee of people uh, who've been studying the, the, the place and the role of women in the ministry of the church and trying to do a better job, be faithful to what the Scriptures say uh, we, we can and can't do 
honestly, uh, with and for women. One of the convictions the committee had was that uh, many churches in the PCA are operating or the women in those churches are operating under a sense of what they can't do rather than a sense of what they should be empowered to do uh, and utilize their gifts and serve the body in, in various capacities. And so even having Vicki read uh, is one way in which I think we're trying to be faithful to that. Uh, but we dealt with some other things. Those of, uh, Some of you may be aware last year we, uh, as a denomination, confessed uh, racial sins of the past and our complicity with those things. It was a big deal. Uh, this year, that committee reported on the work they've been doing, uh, and, uh, and that was encouraging as well. So there's a lot of good things going on. Probably the biggest thing to mention to you is, uh, and to encourage you, the PCA is growing. Uh, contrary to many mainline, many other Christian denominations in the United States, the PCA is growing. Now, it's not, it's not growing like this. It's kind of, you know, steadily, incrementally growing. But we are growing. Uh, and so as a testimony to the, the vision for us of churches like Trinity, who uh, many years ago said we want to plant churches in Polk County. And we're the benefits of that. Uh, and as we continue to seek to expand and, 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 and do more of that in our DNA, um, we're trying, to, we're trying to grow the denomination. We're the oldest denomination in the U.S. 69.5 is our median age. Uh, and so obviously we need to be growing younger in addition to growing uh, wider, more diverse, and, uh, and other, other areas that, uh, that the PCA is working on. So continue to pray for the denomination, I would ask uh, our leaders uh, and, uh, and the way in which God is expanding um, expanding the work. So just a, a, an editorial note there. Um, wanted you to be aware of what was going on. Sometimes those things go on and, and, and we, don't, we don't make congregations aware. So I wanted to do that. We're starting today a series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, each week, similar to what we did with Psalm 23, we are going to stand and recite the Creed. Uh, it is, as we sang a few minutes ago, uh, one of my favorite songs ever written by Rich Mullins, uh, we're not making this, it's making us. It is a formative thing, both as we recite it, but as we increasingly believe it. And so uh, we're going to do that each week. So uh, again, just, just to prepare you. The Apostles' Creed bears the title Apostles' Creed, not because it was written by the apostles, but for the early church because it, it came to summarize the apostles' teaching. Uh, and in its current form, what you just read dates to the 4th century. So that means Christians have been reciting those words since the 300s, and we're now in 2017. So that's some, some 1,700 years of existence. That should be pretty amazing uh, since we live in a relatively young country. Uh, and yet, as members of the body of Christ, we recite that it's 1,700 years old. Uh, brothers and sisters say that around the world every Sunday. Um, and so it unites us. It connects us. Uh, the ancient church used that, this creed to identify believers. And so uh, if you could say it, they would know you're a Christian. They would use it to instruct new converts. They would use it as a confession as they worshiped, similar to, to how we do on a monthly basis when we take the Lord's Supper. It was a way to distinguish themselves in a world that was full of competing ideologies, full of 
competing philosophies and worldviews very, very much uh, like today. It's a way that we stand out as God's people that we can center ourselves around this teaching. It's the shortest formulation of Christian orthodoxy in the history of our faith. And so you could say someone is a Christian if they can say, yes, I believe to the entire creed. Uh, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you, you may have heard Christians arguing over the years over many kinds of issues, over many, uh, whether it's style of worship, whether it's we baptize these this age group and we don't baptize this age group and the, the list goes on and that's what's behind many of our denominational differences in fact but the apostles creed is beautiful in that it unites rather than divides uh, and, and and so this summer we're going to take an opportunity to learn obviously as we work through the creed there's, there's a lot of doctrine to learn there's a lot of teaching that it helps us to grasp but also we simply want to be encouraged in our faith because it provides another opportunity as we move through the summer, as we approach the fall, as we think about two services, as we think about the need for growth, our desire to continue to plant churches. Knowing what you believe or having a summary of your faith is important uh, because obviously in order to grow, we've got to be sharing the gospel with our neighbors. We've got to be inviting them into uh, corporate worship. And in order to do that, as we befriend skeptics, as we engage with unbelievers, we've got to know what it is we believe and also why. Now, to, to non-Christians who might be here, skeptics, you might not, you, you're just not sure where you are. If you're here or you're, you're listening on the app, I would encourage you to keep coming, keep listening over the next 12 weeks. And as we major on the majors, some of you heard this phrase before, major on the majors. As we do that, uh, I hope your heart will be warmed and you'd come to faith even, to be able to agree with the statements that are in the creed. Uh, we're seeking to be rooted this summer. I uh, bought a book recently on the Apostles' Creed to kind of help me in, uh, in, in preaching through some of this, and it's called Rooted. And that's a great vision or picture of what we're trying to be, rooted in the doctrines of the Christian faith, but also reminded of what unites us, what brings us together, rather than on what separates us. Uh, so let's begin this morning uh, with the first two words, I believe. Uh, the, the, the following weeks will be the various topics encompassing what it is we believe. Those are the first two words, and then each week we'll break the creed down into different aspects, different parts. And I hope it'll make sense to you as we go as to why the outline, which is printed for you in the insert in the worship folder, uses the word faith, why I chose faith as opposed to belief. Uh, the need of faith, why we need it, what are the obstacles that keep us from it, how do you get it, okay, it's a gift, and then the power, thirdly, the power that comes with it. Um, one more note before we get started, this is the way it always is when you're starting a new, a new series, but being topical, okay, that we're not going to go through a book of the Bible and you'll kind of know where we're going each week, uh, being that it's topical, there's a lot of Bible references and verses, and I, I apologize for that ahead of time because I know sometimes that can be um, frustrating to follow along with. I'll be using some of the ones in the worship folder, but I'll, I'll be using lots of others that aren't printed for you. So if you need a list or would like a list of those, please let me know. I'll be happy to give it to you. Uh, and it'll probably be that way each week as we go through, again, because we're covering various topics uh, throughout, throughout the summer. So first, the need of faith. What are the obstacles to our believing, 
What's the source of our problem? In Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, Paul says that we suppress the truth about God and exchange it for lies. The most basic reason we do not believe is because of our sin, our fundamental commitment to live on our own terms, to go our own way. Um, Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 5 says, each of us have turned to our own way. We've gone our own way. We've gone after our own way of doing things, doing life. And we avoid accountability along the way. And as a result, we live in fear of losing control. So we hold on very tightly to the reins of our lives. Uh, no pun intended there. The reins and reigning, right? R-E-I-G-N and R-E-I-N. Very similar uh, words. We live in pride that our opinions are correct and we become vehemently committed to them. But think additionally about this. A couple of obstacles to believing and, and, and think about this in the context of our culture and the, the, the types of people that you run into who either refuse to believe or who are just, just apathetic, just indifferent to Christianity. Think about God, right? He's invisible. So if I tell you something or, or someone that you can't see is actually real, I'm working against common sense, right? The invisibility of God only makes it easier to doubt his existence, and it only makes it easier for us to Lean on created things, things we can see even more. Think about God's law, his expectations, his requirements. We find that our desires are constantly clashing with his. In Romans 7, Paul says, The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. So I find a war at work within me. Those are Paul's words. Uh, I... I I can certainly relate to that. I'm sure you can too, right? Think additionally about the supernatural events of the Bible, how rare they are. How many resurrections from the dead have you seen? Right? Uh, how many bodies of water have you seen split in two? The rarity of those sorts of things adds to our skepticism that God is real. And while we ignore, of course, this, the clear evidence of the natural world, this is part of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, we ignore, we suppress, we put down the clear evidence of the natural world and its testimony to, to design, to purpose, to complexity. One, one Bible scholar said it this way, the Bible teaches us that our unbelief is not from a shortage of data, but from a clash of wills. So for sure, we must be spiritually awakened to be able to believe, but in, in reality, we don't want to believe. The Bible's clear in its assessment of humanity. We run from faith, we deny it, we squash it. But, but what's it mean to have faith in anything? Let me ask you this question. What is it about which you can say, quote, I absolutely believe for certain that. So, uh, I asked my wife, Jamie, this question. I said, what, you know, what are the kinds of things you can say? I absolutely believe for certain that. And I was, as is typically the case when she and I are having these kind of conversations, I'm, I'm trying to school her, educate her, coach her. So I'm looking for an answer. And the more answers she gives me that aren't that, the more frustrated I get. Just ask her. It goes that way every time. And so I'm looking for a certain answer because it's the way I answered this question. Um, 
I was thinking, I'm absolutely for certain, I absolutely believe for certain that gravity will, you know, keep my feet on the ground when I wake up tomorrow morning. And, and, and she answered this question. I didn't tell her that that was my answer or something that brought to mind first. She, she said, mm, I'm absolutely for certain believe that uh, uh, you love me, that divorce isn't an option for us, that it was all this touchy-feely kind of stuff, right? The difference between men and men and women, right here in this uh, in this statement. And I said, "No, no, I'm thinking like, what are you absolutely certain of that you love me?" I mean, it was, and I said, "No, no, no, like gravity, you know." So yeah, it was one of those interesting conversations uh, that, that that we have many of. I assure you. But part of the problem is the word belief, as we use it today has quite a different connotation and background than it did in the first few centuries of the church when they were coming up with the creed, when they were formulating the creed. The Greek word for faith was actually formed from a verb with the same root. But the verb means to believe into. That's literally what they were saying. So when you say, I believe in democracy, or I believe in UFOs, you're typically referring to some sort of intellectual opinion, right? You might believe in democratic principles, but you may choose not to vote. You might believe in UFOs, but you're not out chasing them, right? Something intellectual versus a faith commitment, which is very different. Whether it's a car, whether it's a doctor, the pew you're sitting on. Faith is a matter of treating the person or the thing as trustworthy and committing yourself to it. So when a Christian in the early church declared, I believe, they meant they were believing into the events and the truths that are narrated in the creed. The creed tells a story. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 equates faith to setting your mind on the Spirit. In fact, he says, the more you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the more time you take to believe into the truths of Christianity, the more convinced of them you become and the more your life takes the shape of them. Now, look back at our passage from uh, Hebrews 11. It's printed on, on your insert. Just verse 6. Verse 6 says, Without belief that God is real, you certainly won't draw near to him, which means you won't know his heart for you and you won't know his commands. Now, whether you consider yourself religious or not, your set of beliefs about the world, the way it operates, where it and we came from, all of us, in one way or another, are operating on faith. Now, let me read to you the words from a guy who wrote an, an editorial in the New York Times, or excuse me, in the LA Times in 2004. So this is 13 years ago. It's even more true now, but listen to these words. What we're observing in our society, he says, seems to be a struggle of religion against no religion. But in actuality, it's a conflict of various religions, including secularism. Now, if you object that secularism isn't a religion because it has no deity, let's remember that other faiths like Zen Buddhism, for example, also lack belief in God. What is a religion then? And here he defines it simply this. A religion is a system of beliefs explaining where life comes from, what life means, and what we as living beings are supposed to be doing with our few allotted years. Answers to these questions are not provable. They're taken on faith. I have no idea where this uh, writer stands with respect to Christianity, but he's hit the nail on the head, right? Uh, they're not provable, those answers. 
They're taking on faith. And to be able to stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth and so on, must be taken on faith. So there's a lot of things working against us. There's a lot of things working in us that make faith difficult, that that are obstacles to it. So how do you get it? How do you get the ability to confess, uh, which brings us to the gift? And the word gift somewhat gives away the answer to the question of how you get it, doesn't it? The gift of faith, obviously it has to be given to you. Look at the assurance of pardon. Uh, It's printed for you in your worship folder uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, okay? I'm going to read these verses again. The apostle kind of summarizes salvation here. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If the main source of the problem is our unbelief and our stubborn refusal to believe, then the solution comes with the gift of faith that's straight out of the heart of God. He works in such a kind and powerful way that he he actually overcomes our hostility. Salvation belongs to him from start to finish. In fact, in John 6, verse 29, Jesus said, even our believing in him is God's work. By his grace alone, he grants to us the ability to trust him in Jesus Christ. And the result is faith. The faith that says, I believe. Now, look back at the the call to worship in your worship folder from Isaiah 43. God here declares his power and authority and desire to save, okay? Look there, he says, I declared and saved and proclaimed, I work, and who can turn it back? Or listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. See, part of the miracle of faith Uh, in a a person is the transformation from someone who distrusts God's words and distrusts his heart to someone who embraces every single thing that comes from God's mouth and out of his heart as good and trustworthy. Uh, Dads, the, the greatest gift that you can give to your family is to read the Bible every day. To, to take God at his word for those words to become such a treasure to you because they are good and trustworthy to grow in your increase of faith that God is a God of his word and begin to put those things into practice as you husband and as you father and as you befriend and as you supervise at work and all the different nooks and crannies of your life. The Bible, in fact, tells one long story of God's plan to convince his people of his love for them and the goodness of his commands to them. So I just want to briefly walk through the story of the Bible. Think about the first sins described in the Bible, or the first sin, rather. It was a lack of faith on the part of the first man and woman that God was for them. Instead, they chose to have faith in a lie that God was holding out on them, that his word to restrict them wasn't born of love. Or take Abraham a few chapters later. The reason why Abraham is seen as such an amazing figure in the Bible is his faith. His faith that's illustrated in the very act of trusting God's command 
when God says, leave your country and your father's house and go to the land I'll show you. Where is that? I'll show you when you get there. Talk about trust, right? Israel later in the wilderness battled unbelief in God's goodness and trustworthiness as they wandered around for 40 years. And ultimately, many years later, they would intermarry with foreigners. They would sacrifice to pagan gods of the peoples around them, literally breaking faith. That's the term that the prophets used and committing spiritual adultery. Because what is adultery after all, if not a ruining of the trust of a lover or a spouse? And that breaking faith resulted in their exile. Now, fast forward to Jesus. Do you know that there were only two recorded times in all the Gospels where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was astonished, was amazed, was blown away, to use modern English? The Greek word literally describes him being in awe or amazed. Okay, so think about this for a minute. God in human flesh is amazed. What were those two times? Well, both times were related to Jesus encountering faith, which is how you know only God can give it. And when you have it, everything changes. The first was in his hometown, Nazareth. His family and friends took offense at his teaching. They mocked him and they said, this guy can't be for real. He's a carpenter. Mark 6.6 says, He marveled because of their unbelief. So these were the people who would have known Jesus the best, right? They would have spent the most time with him. They would have been with him for his first 30 or so years. You get that? They were with him a lot longer than the disciples were ever with him. Arguably just a couple of years for those guys. These people had known him for 30 years. And they refused to believe. And he stands in awe of their unbelief. Now, contrast that with the other instance of Jesus being astonished. It's in Matthew chapter 8. He's met in a small town by a Roman centurion whose servant is paralyzed. And this man has such faith, such trust, he believes Jesus only needs to say the word and healing will result. And here's the deal. The centurion is willing to stake the life of one of his most valued possessions on just the word of Jesus. Okay, it's so extraordinary that Jesus says, I've not seen faith like that in all of Israel. So on the one hand, very insulting to the Jews, very empowering to this Gentile. This man, a citizen of a pagan nation, expresses more faith in the words and work of God's Messiah than his own relatives. Faith like that only comes from above, and because it's a gift and can't be earned, it cuts boasting off at the source. You do nothing for it. You don't get it by being born in the right family, being born of a certain ethnicity, being born in a certain area of town, having a certain amount of money, a certain pedigree, whatever it is, it's only through a gift. And you know you have it when you find yourself utterly dependent on Jesus to sustain it. You know you have it when you can't seem to muster the courage to believe and you find yourself crying out with the father in Matthew 9 who's so desperate for Jesus to heal his son. He says, if you can do anything, please heal him. And Jesus says to him, if you can, do you know who you're talking to? And the man replies, He says, everything's possible for him who believes. 
And, and the man replies, I believe. Help my unbelief. What an honest assessment of himself. And so when you can say, I believe, and in essence mean, I'm willing to stake my life on this stuff. So as we, in the coming weeks, continually recite this creed, as you say, as you begin with, I believe, in essence, in your heart, it's I'm willing to stake my life on the fact that God the Father is almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You realize these are radical statements to make. Radical statements to make. When you can say that, you know your faith is real. It's not just an intellectual assent to facts. It is a declaration from your heart that the Lord is trustworthy. You can stake your life on it. Which results in, thirdly and lastly, a great power uh, in, in your faith. Uh, I want to give you two quotes. One from um, our, our patron saint. He's actually, his picture is not on our uh, stained glass windows in, anywhere, but we probably should come up with one with uh, C.S. Lewis on it. Uh, we could put it somewhere, maybe in the back where nobody can really see it. Uh, but one from our patron saint, Clive Staples Lewis, and then one from Flannery O'Connor. But uh, C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. Not only because I see it, and here it is, but because by it I see everything else. Okay? That's a person who's willing to stake their life. That's a person who says, I believe and is experiencing power as a result of it. Flannery O'Connor said, I am no disbeliever in spiritual purpose and no vague believer. I see from the standpoint of Christian orthodoxy. This means that for me, the meaning of life is centered in our redemption by Christ and what I see in the world, I see in its relation to that. Similar, okay, in what they both say. To, to say I believe in a set of truths leads to owning those truths in your heart, which leads to acting out those truths in your life, okay? N now, when I'm putting a, a sermon together, there aren't too many times where I, 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 I put a statement down and I think, I should say that again. That was pretty, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Doesn't happen very often. But this one I actually thought was kind of profound, so I'm going to say it again. I mean, you don't necessarily have to think so, but I'm the one with the microphone. So to say I believe in a set of truths leads to owning those truths in your heart, which leads to acting out those truths in your life. Merely knowing something may or may not lead to action, okay? Now, those of you who know me, you had to know I was going here, but I may know that spinach is good for me to eat. Highly recommend it, by the way. It's very, very good. Uh, but unless I believe it's good for me, chances are I'm not going to make it a part of my diet. While it may sound weird to talk about a faith commitment in reference to food, the dynamics are very applicable, okay? If I believe it true that something is good for me, then I'm going to act in good faith. I'm going to make a commitment based on that thing's trustworthiness. So in the case of food, they've done studies to prove spinach has vitamins and minerals and it, it, it's, it's good for you, right? You should, you should eat it. Based on that, based on that, I'll change my diet. I'll deny myself less healthy alternatives. I'll take steps to act now. The point is saying, I believe, 
generates a powerful impulse. It, it generates a movement inside of us that makes life different. To declare your faith in the truths contained in the Apostles' Creed is a pledge of allegiance of sorts. The power comes as more and more your life gets aligned with and rooted in the story that the creed tells. It becomes your identity. And so I want to finish with a story from John 20. It's printed on your insert. I just found myself reflecting on this story. It's a, it's a, a relatively well-known story, uh, a famous one post-resurrection. But I found myself reflecting on this because not only of what Thomas says, but of what Jesus says in response. Thomas says, unless I see the, the, the scars and so forth, I will what? I'll never believe. Okay? So, in order to see, Jesus has to show himself to Thomas. Thomas has to see the scars. He has to put his hand in his side and experience the beauty and the glory and the majesty of this one, uh, Jesus crucified and resurrected. And for Saul on the road to Damascus, it was no different. He refused to believe until he caught a sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas says, unless I see, I will never believe. And Jesus shows himself to Thomas. And then he says what? Don't disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. And when your heart, when my heart, by faith, catch sight of the majesty of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, you'll see the scars, and you'll know they were for you. You'll see him and experience his goodness for you. And you'll come to trust him, that he's for you. And you'll confess what? Just like Thomas. My Lord and my God. Very simple and yet very powerful confession that the Gospel of John ends with. John says, these things were written that you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ. The power of that experience and its ability to sustain us. Thomas coming to believe and trust in the Lordship of Christ would propel him to carry the message of the Gospel as far as uh, modern day India. In fact, uh, in a town in India, uh, they, they believe it's where he was uh, martyred and buried, and they have a, uh, uh, they have a memorial to him there. The, the, the apostles so trusted, they so believed that they gave their lives to see unbelief conquered. And so, let me say, if you're a Christian, or, you're, or if you're not a Christian, rather, if you're skeptic, if you're unsure, where are you? Where's your faith? What things in your life are you so convinced of that you are taking them on faith? Are you willing to stake your life on those things? My prayer is, if you're not a Christian or you're unsure of whether you believe or not, whether you can't say, whether you can't confess that creed yet, I believe, that you'd reach out to Jesus, even this morning, and ask for faith that you'd listen in the coming weeks to the things Christians believe, and you'd hear Jesus saying all throughout the next 11 weeks, don't disbelieve, but believe. And as we set out to explore the creed, for, for those of you who consider yourselves Christians, 
and have come to a place where you say, I believe, let's ask the Lord to propel us, like the apostles, let's ask the Lord to propel us toward our neighbors, toward our coworkers. And as we declare each week, I believe, let's renew and root ourselves once again in this story. It's a story, if you've been around the church for a long time, you already know it. You've said the creed hundreds and hundreds of times in your life, uh, but its power remains so significant, so transformative. We didn't make it, but it's making us. And as it makes us, it shapes us and sends us out. So let's pray that God would do that uh, as we begin these next weeks uh, in, in the creed. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for making up this story, for creating it, for inventing it. But beyond that, we thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's real. We thank you that what you say you will do, what you said you would do, you did and you continue to do. Thank you that you are trustworthy, that your word is good, and that again and again and again you prove yourself true to it. Would you continue to form us? Would you continue to root us in the truths that we find here? Thank you that faith is a gift, that we can't earn it, so then we can't boast about having it. Thank you that all glory and honor and praise belongs to you and you alone. You work and no one can turn it back. So we pray, would you continue to work in our hearts as we journey through uh, this statement of faith? Would you increase our faith? Would we move increasingly and permanently away from disbelief toward belief? Come, Lord Jesus, and do that by the power of your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, as you go from here, receive these words. They're the promise that as you go, God goes with you. They're yet again another testimony to you that his word is a good word, that he's a trustworthy God, uh, that where we fail, he never will. Uh, and so as you go, and uh, whoever you know, uh, you may have friends, neighbors, whoever, uh, not Christians, wondering about Christianity, uh, invite them back next week. Uh, invite them over the coming weeks to hear uh, the basics of our faith, what it is that we say we believe, uh, and who knows what God might do as a result. So receive these words as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.